Before we jump into the text, I wanted to ask one question to you all. This is completely random, but I do want you to raise your hand. How many of you in the past week have filled out some type of review, whether it be online or a survey? How many of you have filled out some type of review? You've given something a rating. Okay, I've got a few hands. Now, this is what our society, our culture kind of lives around. We, we, commerce is completely dependent upon reviews, and it's really convenient when we're looking up items for the baby that we need to prepare for. It's, you see that review, and you see that Amazon's Choice you know, thing. You know, okay, it's got a 1,000 reviews. They're four, four stars and above. I think we might be able to trust this. You know, you depend upon that review. You go buy anything at any store, and that cashier, the first thing they do is they're, they're circling that survey for you to fill out because we want to hear about your feedback. And in a capitalist culture, you know, a capitalist economy, that's how things work. The customer's always right, and you really get to determine those things. But we take that power, and a lot of times we love that power a little too much. You go on, you can hear stories of restaurants that have been destroyed by someone who just feels the power to go leave a negative review. And you go, there's a a review of a restaurant critic in the New York Times a couple weeks ago about some steakhouse that I've never been to and never will go to, but a classic one, and they just, they just ripped it a new one and talked about how bad it was, and it destroyed everything. We like to give our opinions about how things are supposed to be. We love to give that kind of feedback, and our culture encourages it. So we think that we have the right to give that feedback, that review, and we take it not just from our Amazon purchase history, but we also take it to every situation in our life. So how often do you go through a hard time and you go to God and you say, you know what, you could have done this better. You know, you could have you could have allowed this to be just a little bit easier. No, Lord, why didn't you give me this? I deserve this instead. I deserve to be treated like the best person because I'm the center of the world. And when you're a consumer on Amazon, maybe that's a good motivator. That ensures a good product. But before a holy God, that is a terrible, terrible position to take. Well, see... The Israelites are ready and willing to give a review. We've already seen that once. We saw that on one side of the Red Sea. They were really ready and willing to give God a review and say, Lord, why, Moses, why did you even bring us here? Wouldn't it have been better if we just died there? And God saved them. And we spent the last two weeks seeing how God miraculously saved the Israelites from the army of Pharaoh, from Pharaoh himself, they bring, God brings them through the Red Sea. They're on the other side, and last week we saw the praise and worship that came about because of that, and it's a glorious picture of a people who recognize what God has done and joyfully hope. I mean, if you read the end, we talked about the end of Moses' song, the song of the sea last week, 
they're talking confident about, Lord, the nations tremble before You. They're going to melt away. They're terrified of You. And yet, we get to verse 22. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. They're three days in. They come to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Three days in. Now, I don't know about you, but I can usually remember when something happened just then, but look, they immediately forget. Usually, when something miraculous happens, it sticks with us for a while. You think about what happened, something terrible happens, it sticks with us for a while. I remember everyone in here, except for those under a certain age, I guess, will remember 9-11 and exactly what happened. You'll remember how the nation responded for weeks, maybe even months afterwards. It affected but it's, it's worn off, hasn't it? You see, the people of Israel, they've already forgotten. And they've not just forgotten, but now they're going to come and grumble and complain. And we're not any better. This just highlights in, in a very specific fashion the problem of the human condition that we continue to forget. And one of the primary responses to that forgetting is grumbling and complaining. Now my main point this morning that I want us to just see is that God desires that we would find our hope and peace in Him and in Him alone. That's the point. That's the whole point of this whole passage. And I know it covers a ton of ground. I'm going to try to summarize as we go over the text. But I want you to go back after today and read through the end of chapter 15 and read through Exodus 16 to see what God is doing for His people. You see, He wants them to find their hope and their peace in Him and in Him alone. But unfortunately, unfortunately, we can't do that on our own because there's a, a problem with our hearts. So we see Israel, the grumblers. And I want us to just look at, we've already looked at what they did initially, but it's not even after that. You see, after this, God provides, he, he brings Moses aside, and he tells Moses, it, sh, it says the text, it showed him a log. So God shows Moses what he can do to make the bitter water at Marah sweet. So that means drinkable. And he throws the stick in the water, and it, it miraculously cleanses the water, makes it drinkable. It's no longer bitter. That means it's probably had too much salt and minerals that it couldn't be drunk. It wasn't safe to drink. And now they're able to drink they're in the middle of the desert. God provides for them. So then God says in verse 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So God brought them to that point. Already we've got a hint that God was using this situation. He drove them into the wilderness. They run out of water. Their immediate response was not, Lord, You will provide. You've already rescued us. But their response was, I'm going to grumble and complain to Moses. It would be better if we were back in Egypt. And God says, look, I'm your healer. 
he again graciously shows them a sign and says, look, I can heal bitter water and make it whole, make it well, make it good for you again. And afterwards, they, they come to Elam. So they, they, they are there. And after this, God provides them water at Marah. And then they come to Elam. And there they find what? Twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. And they encamp there by the water. So they were in the middle of the desert. They're doubting God's goodness. And God says, look, I'm going to provide for you. And I'm about to provide for you in ways that you can't even imagine. Where does he take them next? To a place where there's plenty of water, there's shade. So we see that God provides. And they set out from Elam and the congregation of the people, they come to the wilderness of sin. So they're in the wilderness again. And it's the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So what this means, if you're keeping track of the dates that Moses writes down, this means it's in exactly one month since the Passover. It's exactly one month since they left out of Egypt. They find themselves in the middle of the wilderness. So you can imagine, we can be really critical and we should rightly be critical as long as we don't, throw, don't fail to throw ourselves right in there with Israel. They're a month out of Egypt. All the provisions that they had are probably running a little low. When you've got close to what maybe a million people together and you've got provisions but you're going straight into the wilderness, you might start to run a little low and it would make anybody nervous for sure. So they can be, it can be understood that yes, they are concerned about how they're going to provide food, but the problem is their concern doesn't lead them to go to God and pray and ask for help. What do they do again? So one month after people of Israel come and grumble against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So, you hear what they're saying there. It's not just that they're ungrateful. It's not just that they're going to complain. But now their complaints are leading them to accuse God accuse Moses of wanting to kill them in the wilderness. That is grumbling to the extreme. Yet, how often do we find ourselves in the midst of a challenging situation and say, Lord, why would you do this? Lord, why have you done this? Here's the problem with grumbling. The problem with grumbling. Grumbling fails to see our sin and what we truly deserve. The Israelites, they're complaining. They're grumbling. They're coming before Moses. And we might say, well, look, they don't have food. They need food. Well, the, the proper response is never to grumble. The proper response is not to complain. The proper response is to come before the Lord and say, Lord, you are the one who provides. I don't understand what's going on right now, but Lord, I know that you are good. 
He grumbling fails to see our sin. What do we truly deserve? If, if we're sinful people, we know we are sinful people. We continue to rebel against God. We continue to sin against Him. What do we truly deserve? What, we have to get down to the root of it. We don't deserve anything except for condemnation for our sin. That's what we truly deserve. And the first assumption that comes with a grumbling heart, a complaining heart, the first assumption is, I deserve this. I deserve what I want. I deserve better than what I've got. But the reality is, we're sinners. We deserve condemnation. God has told the Israelites already, I did not save you for your sake because there's something special in you. He said, I saved you so that my name might be glorified. He saves because he desires to show grace. When we grumble, we fail to see our sin. We fail to see what we truly deserve. And grumbling fails to see the magnificence of God's provision. I mean, we see that clearly here in this story. It doesn't take long for them to see, Lord, okay, you provided water in the, when it was bitter. Now you provided a shelter, and then they go a little bit farther into the wilderness, and now it's, Lord, you're not going to pro- provide anything. Why would we not have food? Why would we not have all this that we need? Lord, you aren't good. We don't trust you. That's what they're saying. They even accuse him of evil intent. And that's a complete rejection of where God has provided for them already. He's rescued them out of Egypt. He's given them goods and he's caused the Egyptians to give over their wealth to give them provisions that they've already had that they wouldn't have had to start with. He's provided for them. He rescues them out of the Red Sea. He rescues them from sure death. Yet they forget it all. One author calls this spiritual amnesia. But it's not a problem that's just a problem for the Israelites. It's a problem for us as well. We forget how God has been so gracious to us. Us gathering here this morning is grace from God. You waking up this morning with breath in your lungs is grace from God. We don't deserve this. Grumbling fails to see the magnificence of God's provision. Now the grumbling, I've already sort of addressed this, but it questions the character of the one and only one whose character is unquestionable. I mean, think about this. So we talked about last week, we know that God is worthy of our trust because He is sovereign, He's in control of all things, He's supremely capable more than anyone else, anything else, but He's also supremely good, He is completely trustworthy because He is good and He will do no evil. So if He's good and He's capable, why is it that we completely doubt Him again and again by questioning Is He capable and is He good? We question His 
character, and His character is the only character that is unquestionable. Israel questions the character of the one who has saved them and has promised to do much more than that. How often do we question God's character in the midst of our wilderness? See, this is the problem of grumbling. What we need to see Grumbling and murmuring are rebellion against God. We have to see it exactly for what it is. When we complain that something doesn't go our way, when when we sit there and just let it simmer in anger because we don't like the situation we're in, we don't like how things are going, that is rebellion That's exactly what the Israelites are guilty of here, but we are just as guilty day in, day out. We don't like how we're treated at work. We don't like the results of an election. We don't like how much that we get paid. We don't like that we've encountered a challenge that we didn't ask for. Those things are sometimes tragic, sometimes terrible. But the question we must ask ourselves before we grumble, before we complain, before we begin to murmur against God is, what do we deserve? What has God already done? And is He trustworthy? Grumbling and murmuring are rebellion against God because it's a rejection of God's character. It's a rejection of God's promises. So this is the bad news about all this. This is the bad news that grumbling is rebellion. And we're guilty. Israel grumbles before Moses, before God, and they're guilty. But this is how gracious God is. God is at work, even through our grumbling. I want you to see, if you look at the text, he says in verse 4, so their complaint complaint is that, why don't you just leave us in Egypt? We had meat pots there, we ate bread to the full, but then in verse 4, God's response is not... And he would have had every right to do so, to say, you ungrateful people, I'll leave you here. You ungrateful people. And he's going to wipe them off the face of the earth and just in doing so. But no, God is gracious and loving to his people. So he responds, he says, you want bread? Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. If you want to complain about bread, and literally he is about to give them so much bread, so much quail, and this is not the first time this happens throughout the wilderness journey, that they're going to be so sick of 
how God is good to them, that they'll then complain about how much they've had. You tell me what's wrong with that. But the Lord says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God works through our grumbling to make us dependent upon Him. So He gives in the what comes next, He gives this explanation about what He is going to do. He says, I'm going to rain bread on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in. It will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses then talks to the Lord about this and the Lord tells Moses they're not only going to give him bread, but he says, I'm going to give you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? And Moses says to the people, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So we see later down in verse 13, we see then the evening quail comes and covers the camp and in the morning dew lay around the camp and that dew was not dew, but instead was this magnificent lake-like thing, as the text says. It was fine as a frost on the ground. It was manna. And God tells them, He gives them instructions. You're to gather it. You're going to, to gather it together, each one, as much as you can eat for the day. And you're going to bake it. You can bake it. You can boil it. Essentially, it's this perfect provision, literally come from heaven, it's going to be the perfect amount that they need every single day. God is going to provide. And even in the, the midst of this, we see God providing for them manna. He brings quail for them to eat, but the, the focus of this text is on the, the manna that they get. And he gives instructions, he says, don't gather and don't try to keep some for the next day. He says, you're going to be tempted to get more than you need and then try to keep, hold it for later, to, to hoard it for yourself. But what happens? Worms come into it. They come there the next morning and then Moses is angry, we hear. But he says on the sixth day, you're to gather twice as much so that you can use it, you can save it, you can eat it on that seventh day. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. And then some people actually go out, as we read in the text, they go out on the seventh day, not trusting God's word to remain true, and they go out looking for it, and they don't find anything. So Moses says, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So, God gives the people manna in response to their grumbling. What do we see here? Well, if God is at work through our grumbling, we see that God is at work to make us find contentment in him alone. So he enables the Israelites. He prepares them a journey that's going to lead them through the wilderness before they get to the promised land. Why is he doing that? God takes his people through the wilderness so that they will lose the ability to fend for themselves. So that they will be brought to a point of complete dependence upon him. See, God's provision, as we read at the end of chapter 15, his provision is a test. 
It's a test to see whether or not the people will trust Him, whether they will grow to depend upon Him. Like how Doug Stewart summarizes it. It was not just a test to see if they could follow instructions, but a test to see if their hearts were inclined to be His covenant people. The test itself required faith for an agricultural people. Farmers know that if one harvests only enough food in a day to meet the needs of that day, eventually one has no food because no crops or animals produce food every day. Now they were being asked to restrain their natural tendency to gather as much as was available to gather in anticipation of the time when no gathering would be possible. God was teaching them to trust Him every day afresh. And they were challenged to think about His provision in a way that had never before been part of their planning pattern. See, God wants His people to come to a point where they're completely dependent upon Him. Not only that, but God wants His people to find their rest in Him. He tests them, but in doing so, it gives Him the opportunity, divinely chosen right here, to train them. He's going to provide not only manna for them every day, but He's going to introduce something that apparently didn't exist for the nation of Israel before this moment. He's going to provide for them a practice of a weekly Sabbath. Now this is the introduction to the Sabbath, the first time we see it introduced to the people of Israel in the text. And again, remember we talked about last week the Song of Moses, how it reflected the creation song, and at the end of the creation song, on the seventh day, what does God do? He rests from His work. He calls His creation to rest in Him. His goodness, His provision, His care, His sovereignty, His control. See, the people, clearly, they weren't practicing a weekly Sabbath because they thought they had to gather as much as they could every day. So when He gives the specific instructions, don't gather on the seventh day, even some of them still go out to get it. But God is teaching them, you are to rest in Me. You're to trust in Me. Not only are you going to have to trust in Me every single day, to provide that which you grumbled about. But you're going to have to trust in me every single day and once a week. You're going to have to trust in me twice as much. Because I'm going to provide for you for two days. Instead of one. See, this completely upends their typical routine. Yet, all of this, as I said, is just a process. It's a process of training for the people of God. I want you to think about what's happening here. This is the beginning of their wilderness journey. They've been rescued from Egypt. They've completed their exodus out of Egypt. But now they're on their way to the promised land. But what's promised in the promised land? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land that will provide for them all that they need. Now, why do you think us Americans are so quick to give scathing reviews? We're so quick to demand what should be done for us. 
Because we recognize, we need to recognize, we live in a land of plenty. We live in a land with lots of comfort that the rest of the world does not have. But what God does for His people here is He sends them through the wilderness to train them to be dependent upon Him so that when they do enter into a land of plenty, when they do enter into this land of blessing, they would know that it is God who gave it to them. They would know it is God who will continue to give to them because it's God who's in control. See, this wilderness journey, as we're going to see, is a training period. It's a sanctifying period. It's got a a wonderful parallel for us as Christians in our walk. We look forward to the promised land. We look forward to heaven, eternity, when Christ will rule and reign and all that is terrible, all that is broken will be made new. We've been rescued. If you've trusted in Christ, you have salvation. You've been rescued out of bondage to slavery. But right now, in this walk, God is going to sanctify us by showing that True life comes when we are completely dependent upon Him. You see this in Israel, they're being trained to depend upon God. And this, if you want some evidence of where I'm coming from from this, I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 18. So this is as God has given the law to them again before, after the they rebel against God multiple times in the wilderness, but then as they're about to finally enter into the promised land, this is what Moses says. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. That sounds something like what he said to them at Mara, doesn't it? He said, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. So even as they enter into the promised land, they are reminded, why did God send them through the wilderness? It was to test you, to do you good in the end. What's true for Israel here is true for us as well. God, His character remains unchanged. No matter the challenge that we face, God's intent is to do you good. Essentially, in this text this morning, Israel thinks they're being given the short end of the stick. 
But the reality is God is training them through dependence so they won't be so quick to rebel later. Unfortunately, if we continue reading the story, we see that they still rebel. But this should be, and it is for me, it's scary to preach this. Because the smack in the face to independent people like you and me, because God, what this means is that God wants us to be dependent upon Him in every way because we can't trust our own hearts to remain humble. God wants us to be dependent upon Him because we can't trust our own hearts and we shouldn't trust our own hearts when we trust our own hearts where does it get us? God is gracious to provide a means for His people. A means for them to practice daily, weekly dependence upon Him. Thirdly, God desires for us to grow in thankfulness and gratefulness. when we recognize what we don't deserve and we see that the blessings we do have are from God and not of our own work it encourages us to be thankful it encourages us to be grateful and that in turn shapes our character it affects our generosity Paul quotes from this very text in 2 Corinthians as he talks to the church there he says I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened but that as a matter of fairness your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. God sends us into the wilderness to learn thankfulness and dependence so that we might be generous towards others. This growth in thankfulness and gratefulness that God teaches us through dependence upon Him it affects our willingness to obey God. It teaches us that obedience is good even when it doesn't look like it's going to turn out well. Because we can trust in His goodness. It affects our attitude. My problem is that I tend to be a cynic. I tend to criticize everything. If this is true, and it is, and I am commanded to be hopeful. You are commanded to be hopeful. Because God keeps His word. We tend to be grumble. We tend to be a people who murmur, complain because things don't go the way we think they should. Because we faced such and such a challenge that we don't think we deserve. What we see is that we don't deserve anything. But God is gracious to teach us. Now, this is all for the nation of Israel as they prepare. Think about that. This is what God is doing to prepare His people to go into the land. Because what kind of people will they be if 
the moment they get into the land, they say, look at how great we are. He says, don't do that. Remain humble. You are grateful. But for Israel, they fell at this. God provides for them manna in the desert. They end up getting tired and sick of it, so they complain about all they have is manna. complain because they don't have water even though God's able to make water come out of rocks. But here's the good news. God has dealt with this problem. All this leads up, all this points to the cross. We've seen how Passover pointed to the need for a substitutionary atonement. We've seen how God is going to prepare His people through a baptism of judgment and death. And we see how God is going to provide for His people through a perfect Savior. That perfect Savior is Jesus. And even as God has promised in this text, Exodus 15, He says, if you will trust in Me, I am your healer. How does Jesus open up His ministry? He opens up at the beginning of the Gospels and he reads from Isaiah. He reads that God is going to heal his people, make the blind see, make the lame walk. And he says it's fulfilled today. Jesus is the healer. But the healing we need is not just the water that's bitter around us. We need our hearts healed from this bitterness. We need our hearts healed from pride, or from rebellion. Not only that, but Jesus is our bread. John 6, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What was God doing through Israel? He's preparing a people. He's demonstrating His grace. He's also pointing forward to the one who would be the ultimate the final sacrifice, the final final fix to our wretched problem of our sinful hearts. Jesus is our bread. We're called to trust in Him day in, day out. He is the bread that comes from heaven. And not only that, but even as God introduces the Sabbath to His people so that His people might structure their entire lives around resting upon God's character, resting upon God's promises. We read that Jesus is our Sabbath. He declares in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John that He is Lord of the Sabbath, but what we see is that He is our Sabbath rest. We read from the author of Hebrews, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The same sort of disobedience is an ungrateful, unthankful, grumbling, murmuring heart that declares that God is not good, that declares that God is not able, that declares that God will not keep His promises. And every single one of us in this room has been and is that person. But the good news is that God has provided rest. God has provided bread, the bread of life, the bread of eternal life. He has provided water that is living water. That water is through His Son. It is through Jesus who we have hope. And in Jesus, we have no reason to complain. If we find ourselves in Christ, we have no reason to murmur or to grumble because look at what we have been given. We've been given eternal life. We've been enabled to know our Creator, to know our God. We have no reason to be a grumbling people. No reason. We can't justify it no matter how we try. We are called to be a thankful people. We can be thankful because look at what God has done for us. I pray that if you don't know that peace, if you are hearing for the first time, realizing for the first time just what God has done for you this morning, I pray that you'll trust in Christ. By trusting in Him, as He said in John 6, if you will take my life, if you will trust that His sacrifice was enough, you too can have eternal life. And for my fellow Christians, let's not be like Israel. We're called to be a people characterized by gratefulness, by thankfulness, by hope, by joy, because we realize we deserve nothing but condemnation. But God in His grace has made life and life abundant available to us. For that reason, let's be a thankful people. Let's check our hearts when we are prone to grumble, prone to complain. Let's challenge one another to be a grateful people. Let's challenge one another not to grumble and complain before one another but to say look at what God has done how might he transform us as a church how might he transform you in your heart God's good he provides in every way that we do not deserve his character is unquestionably good His sovereignty means He is in control of it all. And as we read in the text, He desires our good. But we must recognize that good only comes 